part of what this evening is about is accepting and owning up to corruption. Because I think that accepting and owning up to something is a much more empowered posture than denial, hiding, fleeing from something, right? So I want to do a little exercise here where before we get into the more sensitive issues of corruption in New Zealand or corruption in my home country, where we can just externalize all the problems out onto the world in general and just own up to the state of affairs uh, that we find ourselves in today. So let's start by raising our glasses to economic inequality. Who's up for toasting to economic inequality? We're going to accept it and own up to it. By accepting, I don't mean that we're not going to try to change it. I mean we're going to own up to its existence. Let me see a, a show of hands in the room. How many people think that globally speaking, wealth is more and more concentrated today and over the last few decades? Raise your hand if you're aware of rising economic inequality. Okay, that's virtually everyone. How many people are aware of Thomas Piketty and capital in the 21st century? Okay, uh, also a good number of hands. So Piketty writes this really long book published in 2014, and he reports that globally speaking, especially in advanced democracies, returns on capital are outpacing returns on labor. So people who get inherited wealth, who have stocks, bonds, who own businesses, not so much the small and medium businessmen and women, but the larger uh, corporations and so on, their wealth is increasing much more quickly than returns on labor. So those of us who work and, uh, and depend on a salary for a living. So Piketty reports that, and he says more troublingly than just a hey, rising economic inequality, he says, the global levels of economic inequality are now so high that they remind him of feudalism. Um, they remind him of the predicate for violent revolutions throughout history. And he basically says, look, this today, what I see around the world is that economic inequality is so bad, I can predict a violent revolution, you know, if, if history is a good guide to this kind of thing. Piketty also says that capitalism doesn't always perform this way, uh, that this degree of inequality is not natural, much less inevitable, but the product of laws and policies that are intentionally produced. So Piketty leaves us with that little nugget. We'll come back to him again later. Um, but now uh, I think we can have another opportunity to uh, accept another reality globally. How about rising illiberal populism and authoritarianism? This ought to be familiar, right? If you look out at the global panorama, um, you look out at Hungary, Poland, India, Brazil, Turkey, the United States, and then more long-standing authoritarian regimes like China and Russia, you tend to see that familiar um, recipe, right? So attacks on the independent media, uh, cracking down on human rights, immigrants, transsexuals, homosexuals, women, not really human beings entitled to human rights, this kind of formula. The rule of law, that was a terrible idea. Um, constitutionalism, judicial independence, those were terrible ideas. Anyone who opposes me as the authoritarian leader, I will deem an enemy of the state and the people and the good of that sort of formula you're all aware of. Is that right? Can I get to see a, a show of hands for people who are aware that this sort of thing is rising in the world today? All right. Yeah, so it's virtually everyone. What am I even doing here? I want to give you a statistic about that, though, because it's not just the famous cases that I summarized. It's a general trend that is pretty well established. So if you were to pull, say, 
the Economist Intelligence Unit report, Freedom House's report, if you were to pull Human Rights Watch's report, what you'd see, for example, just in 2017, is that, seven, depending on the source, 71 to 89 countries suffered a net decline in political rights and civil liberties, with a tiny fraction of, of, the, of that number registering gains. So 2017 was actually the 12th consecutive year of decline in global freedom, according to highly reputable NGOs um, and a magazine. Uh, now, uh, so there's that. Um, third, uh, one more chance to raise our glasses, and I think this might be the hardest one of all to accept, but who is willing with me to raise their glasses, not in endorsement of, but in acceptance of the fact that we most likely do not have a lot of time to revolutionize our failing economic and political systems. We don't have a lot of time. Who's willing to accept that with me? Of course, I'm referring to climate change. This isn't like other moments in history where, hey, this was terrible, the Dark Ages. Okay, we'll have 1,500 years of superstition and torture and so on, but they're not going to extinguish the human race that way, right? Now, this is a, an utterly different and unprecedented moment in history insofar as if, if um, emissions and global temperature rises aren't capped at that certain magic number of whatever it is, 1.5 Celsius, 2 Celsius disaster these days, then the mass extinctions may continue to the point at which, well, everything that we've accepted is normal. Peace, prosperity, a growing pie, sisterhood and brotherhood may become very, very difficult to maintain. Um, and leading scientists even speak of such things as the extinction of the human race, as if that should be our only reason for caring. I, I would think that the extinction of animal species would be enough and warfare and so on. But anyhow, so we've got that. Um, so uh, what I think we've all established together and what you already knew is that there, we're facing the failure of economic, political, and ecological systems. Um, so here you are, and I think that's really interesting that there's this, there's this tremendously depressing global panorama, and yet not just in this room, but in political parties and domestic politics all around the world, there's a movement to confront exactly these issues, right? There's a movement to confront climate change, to confront inequality, to confront illiberal democracy and illiberal populism and all of that stuff. So I'm trying to frame this in, in a hopeful way. Um, and I take this event in, in that spirit. Uh, let me tell you a little bit about how, um, how I understand from the perspective of a U.S. citizen this global trajectory towards inequality and, and climate chaos and so on. Um, and I want to tell you a little bit about it just in terms of how my life has gone. Um, anyone else in the room born in the 1970s? One, two, three, all right, very few. Anyone born in 1976? Yeah. So I was born in that year um, in Massachusetts in the United States. And I mean, I don't remember this as a newborn, but everyone was going around celebrating the bicentennial of the United States, right? That's the, they tell us that is the 200th anniversary of American democracy. Uh, but who else is aware that that's a lie? And that our event tonight is all about confronting truths, right? Confronting things that we're denying or weeding out of, sort of reading out of the picture. Who, know, who else would say that there's no way that American democracy started in 1776? Anyone else with me? 
could American democracy possibly be 200 years old in, in, in 1976? Well, let's go back, shall we, to the founding. Um, one thing that comes to mind would be slavery. Uh, the fact that there were millions of black Africans kidnapped from their homeland, raped, bred in captivity, sold as property, who didn't gain uh, their freedom for a solid 90 years after the uh, American Revolution. That might sound facetious, but guess what percentage of the American adult white male population could vote between about 1776 and the early 1800s? Half of them because half of white males didn't own property or didn't own enough property to vote. So there was political exclusion on the basis of property ownership. How about Quakers, Jews, Catholics? How about Chinese immigrants? They were also excluded from the vote, as were, of course, the other 50% of the population, besides uh, men without property, women. Women were entirely excluded from the vote until 1920. That is not, that is not democracy. And it goes on and on and on. I mean, African-Americans finally get the vote, they, the Civil War. The, there's, the, the, of course, the amendment to abolish slavery. And what do the southern states do? Segregation, of course, literacy tests, poll taxes, white-only primaries. I mean, it just goes on and on. It's like, does anyone really take democracy seriously? Is this more about political inclusion or exclusion? Right? And historically, what I'm getting at is that it's been about political exclusion. You could even say it's been about political domination on the basis of, well, just about every human characteristic, you know? Because it's the white males with property who are on the one side and everyone else who's on the other. And it takes a really long time to even the scales. In fact, so the civil rights movement starts up, uh, 60s and 70s, um, the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act, Martin Luther King, these obstacles to universal suffrage are finally taken care of and enforced. The legislation comes down in the mid-60s with the constitutional amendment as well, but it's not until the early 1970s that this law is enforced and that universal suffrage is, is more of a reality. So when I was born in 1976, I would say that American democracy was at the greatest, at the most, about five years old. So that's, that's a beginning. I mean, I think part of the difficulty, so why do we have climate change? Why do we have this in, these incredible levels of economic inequality? Why do we have this democratic backsliding? Democracy is so well established. How can this happen? Okay, myth number one, right? Democracy, at least in my country, and I would venture in most other countries since mine's the, the longest lasting democratic constitution, uh, democracy is quite new, even as of 1976. And yet there's this incredible arrogance. It's more than just optimism, okay? There's this incredible arrogance about democracy. And I think nowhere was it seen, or is it still seen today, as vehemently as in my country, as in the United States. I mean, think about what happens when the Cold War ends in 1989. Um, so I'm 13 years old. The, I see the Berlin Wall coming down on television. Uh, the Iron Curtain is metaphorically lifting. And then you get people like Francis Fukuyama, who I confronted once on a bus, which is a funny story. But you get people like Francis Fukuyama saying, this is the end of history with the spread of liberal democracy and the end of the Soviet Union and its satellite countries, humankind's ideological evolution has come to an end. The end of history. It's going to be this formula of liberal democracy from here on out. It's going to be peaches and cream. 
And it looks that way for a little while. So um, in 1989, one-third of the nations in the world are democratic, roughly speaking. Ten years later, it sort of looks like Fukuyama might be right about that because that number, one-third, goes all the way up to two-thirds. So at the turn of the century, it looks as though two-thirds of the countries in the world are democratic. And so really, you know, you might think, all right, if you're not looking too carefully, you might think that maybe history is over and maybe all of these ideological uh, contests are over, and maybe these incredible structural issues of, oh, I don't know, the fascists, the Nazis, the communists, um, all of this is over, right? But you know what was happening in the 1990s and 2000s? If you read the data from the World Bank, the U.S. Agency for International Development, you know what they're talking about little by little, once they feel secure that communism is over? Uh, they're owning up to corruption. They said, for example, that surveying the world's democracies in 2001, that about 75% of nations had little to no political transparency when it came to donations and expenditures, and lobbyists and corporate contributions, that there's little to no transparency. You can't tell where the money is coming from a lot of the time. And then other times, another very common fact was that these multi-million dollar campaign contributions are saturating democracies around the world. So we're singing the praises of liberal democracy. We feel as though in the United States, right, uh, we we're very confident that political exclusion and political domination are over because we've, we've taken care of it when it comes to race, sex, minorities, different ethnicities, and so on. But is it possible that we missed one basis for political exclusion and political domination? Is there another thing that's salient about human beings besides our sex and our race and our religion and so on? Well, it's our money. It's our money. Nowhere in this U.S. trajectory, this great evolution towards political equality, freedom, and self-governance for all, I mean, there were efforts to take care of economic inequality. There were efforts to take care of political exclusion on the basis of wealth. But that's the great unfinished architectural piece of American democracy that never gets accounted for adequately. We can talk about why that is a little bit later, but I just want to own up to it. And globally, it's even worse, right? Those reports that I was telling you about, the 75% of countries being opaque and non-transparent and the multi-million dollar campaign contributions and the like, that's as bad as the US or worse. Yeah, so that brings us into the, the early 2000s. And then, you know, Denial is a powerful thing, all right? And the studies I mentioned are in the fine print of a bunch of international organizations. Who's going to read that stuff, right? But something happened in 2014 that I don't think anyone can ignore, all right? I think the cat came out of the bag in 2014. There was this remarkable series of wake-up calls. And, um, and note the date, right? Two years before Trump's election. So um, what happens right before Trump is elected, 2014? There are these three bombshells that come out. All right, the first one is our friend Thomas Piketty, who we've heard from already. But you know what he says about the United States in particular? He says, the United States is the most economically unequal of all advanced democracies. We are at the pinnacle of this global trend of advanced democracies towards concentration of wealth and inequality. So much so 
that just guess what the bottom 50% of Americans hold in terms of total national wealth. Anyone want to say 15%? Bottom half of Americans. Do they at least own 10% of national wealth? Who thinks so? All right, you guys all know I'm going to trick you with this one. So there's not a single hand up in the room. The figure in Piketty's book is 2%. The bottom half of Americans own 2% of national wealth. How about the top 10%? Uh, they own 72% of national wealth. Um, and now it's even more, I understand. According to Oxfam's latest report, it puts the number at 76% of national wealth. Um, so, okay, so Piketty, you know, he says, again, this isn't natural, this isn't normal. You have to look at the outcome of all these contested public policy issues to know how the top 10% of wealth holders could claim 72% of national wealth. And they've done it through privatization, they've done it by reducing entitlements, they've done it through secrecy jurisdictions and offshore tax havens and the Panama Papers kinds of plays. Um, they've done it by um, hollowing out tort law so it's more difficult to run class actions against big polluters and large companies. Um, they've done it by privatizing education, they've done it by privatizing and increasing the price of medical care. Uh, they've turned everything into an industry in the United States. Um, and, and even really surprising things have been privatized in the United States. Like if you go to jail, that tends to be these days a private company running the jail. So do, do a private company is a private maximizing entity, right? Uh, that has to please its shareholders. Does it have an incentive to rehabilitate you and send you out in the world so that you don't ever recidivate and commit crime again? Hell no, they want you there. It costs $30,000 a year minimum to keep you there and actually Trump's children in cages, yeah, the immigrant children being kept in cages and that sort of thing, separated from their families, it's also more expensive to keep those children in those cages than it would be to keep them in one of Trump's hotels. It costs more per day to violate their human rights than it would to take them out for steaks and golf, okay? And the money goes to private companies that have supported President Trump's campaign. And that relates to the second bombshell report that came out in 2014, which was, oh yeah, you know, all that economic inequality and that concentration of wealth, how could that occur? Well, um, Martin Gillens and Benjamin Page published this, this study called Testing Interest Group Theories of American Politics. So they get 2,000 issue areas that they track at the federal level nationally. 2000, almost 2,000 issue areas in national politics that they know people's preferences for. So they're able to track the divide between popular preferences and the actual legislative outcomes that occur. And they're able to also track the similarity between the preferences of lobbying groups and uh, corporate lobbyists and large campaign donors. They find that economic elites and organized groups representing business interests have substantial independent impacts on U.S. government policy. So substantial independent impact on U.S. government policy from economic elites. Well, quote, mass-based interest groups and average citizens have little or no independent influence. Little or no independent influence. How do Martin Gillens and Benjamin Page explain this? Well, it's similar to what I just said about Trump's campaign donors who own the private jails. They say it's well established that organized groups lobby and fraternize with public officials, move through revolving doors between public and private employment, provide self-serving information to officials, draft legislation. 
private groups draft legislation. There's this great news story that, great, uh, interesting news story that broke around the time where this group called ALEC, the American Legislative Exchange Council, had obtained a 17% pass rate for the model laws that it would send office holders. And the way it would produce these model laws is by bringing economic interests and big donors to the table with actual office holders to discuss what legislation should look like. They'd draft model law, and then they'd send it off to people to enact. And they had a 17% pass rate. And they wrote a, a, a mailing to all of their economic supporters like Coca-Cola and groups like this saying, hey, what a good return on your investment we've gotten you. 17%, we're beating the market. You know, that sort of stuff. So Gillens and Page point to all of that. Um, and then, you know, Anyone wondering how this is legal? So, I mean, I'm, I'm describing a system of organized corruption. Highly, highly strategic, well-established, long-standing, effective. How on earth is all of this legal? Well, so the third thing that happens within, in 2014, and these, these, three, these three documents, uh, Piketty's book, Gillens and Page's study, and this Supreme Court opinion are handed out within two weeks of each other. It's incredible. It's like, the, you know, the, if I'm Marianne Williamson here, the universe is calling out for our recognition of this injustice. You know, Marianne Williamson, the, the self-help guru, is running for president with the politics of love. Well, so I'm, I'm running a politics of awareness here of uh, sort of categor categorical injustice. And the Supreme Court's opinion in McCutcheon v. FEC really fits that niche of categorical injustice, though it's handed down in the name of the Constitution. In the case, a majority of the Supreme Court justices in the United States who are appointed for life strike down a $123,000 aggregate limit on campaign contributions. So this was a Watergate-era rule, President Nixon and that whole scandal where he was taking million-dollar contributions from dairy interests and others and then using them illegally. Um, this prohibition on aggregate donations above $123,000 came out of the worst corruption scandal in U.S. history, and it had been on the books since uh, 1974. And the Supreme Court in 2014 takes the case. They don't have to, by the way. Um, they can just let it stand in the courts below, but they want to reverse this law. So they take the case, and they hold that this cap on the total amount of money that each individual donor can spend is a violation of free speech and free association under the First Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. And they say that when big donors and big political spenders gain access and influence to elected office holders, and when that access and influence result in ingratiation and preferences and political policies and so on that are suitable to the donors and spenders, that's not corruption. They have a phrase for it. They say, that's democratic responsiveness. <laughs> I know. It's like, <laughs> it is rather humorous, uh, except that they're serious and they're appointed for life. So the, the McCutcheon opinion, which defines corruption as only an exchange of money for favors, like in a back alley. You know, here's a, here's a bag of cash. Go change the rule on uh, corporate consolidation or the duration of copyright or carbon emissions or whatever. But, so that's illegal if I just give an office holder a bag of cash and say, go do this for me, Chuck. But if I say, hey, I've got a super PAC, which is um, like a political action committee that spends money in elections on independent advertisements, right, that can make a big difference in a campaign. I've got a super PAC, and we're going to spend, I don't know, $20 million, $20 million against you, 
if you don't take the position I want on copyright or emissions or whatever. Um, that's not corruption. That kind of a threat is not corruption. Or I've got a lot of money hanging around for independent ads that could end up going your way um, if you do what you know, we're hoping you'll do. Technically, they're not supposed to coordinate, but those sorts of arrangements are quite common. And the Supreme Court says ingratiation and access aren't corruption. So those are those three um, bombshells that come down in 2014. Um, the legalization of corruption, if you will. So again, the premise of, of our time together, as far as I'm concerned, however, is that corruption for us holds the key. Corruption isn't just our enemy, uh, but it's something we need to explore. That corruption is something that we need to engage with, it's something we need to reflect on, and it's something we need to act on, and that all of these sorts of actions are available to us now. That it's simply a question of our focus, our awareness, and our priorities in life, um, or in politics, I guess I should say. So I do believe I have to stop. Thanks for your time. Thanks for that. Thank you.